You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. I haven't flip flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children, your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what was right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Represent with Mimi. Today, I'm sitting down with Harleen Singh and Margaret Thanos. Harleen is one of Plan International Australia's 2021 youth activists, and Margaret is a director for theatre and film and an intersectional feminist. Harleen and Margaret, how are you both? I'm okay. great. Thank you, Mimi. <laughs> That's good, good. Thank you. I know it's hard with Zoom, hey, to like get um, to cue when someone else is going to speak. I wish we could be in person, but hopefully it'll work well with today. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, we're here today to talk about women in parliament, women in leadership positions, but not just that when we look at the Canberra bubble, the amount of women in parliament, but also the amount of women in colour, which seems to be lacking, and the treatment and the issue of safety of people in the Canberra bubble. Um, Harleen, I'll direct this first question to you, so it's just a bit easier so we're not all jumping in across one another. When did you first become interested in politics? Um, so I've been interested in politics, I think, since I was in year eight. So I was about 13, 14 years old. And I asked one of my guy friends, I was like, are you a feminist? And they go, no, I'm not a feminist. I'm not a man hater. And ever since that, I've been questioning what it means to be a feminist. And within that, I've been into social justice and just working alongside um, local council communities and, you know, hoping that the stigma around what it means to be a feminist or getting equal rights for women is destigmatized because it's quite you know I was taken back to hear that as a 13 year old that being a feminist is a bad thing when it's actually just wanting equality yeah yeah what about you Margaret what do you have to say about that um yeah I completely agree with what Harleen said um I think I came to feminism a bit later I feel like Um, It was always sort of inherent in the way that I was raised um, that I kind of never really questioned it. But then um, obviously I left school and came into the real world, as we call it, um, and sort of realized that there was such a plethora of people from all different backgrounds and that come from different communities where um, maybe gender equality wasn't as inherent a thing as I might have experienced in my younger life. Um, so yeah, that's what drew me to it in the first place. Yeah. Um, so you've both worked together with Plan International to deliver a set of recommendations to Scott Morrison on the treatment of women in politics. Can you both speak to what this experience was like? Anyone's welcome to go first. 
Um, yeah, I think this campaign, um, obviously at the height of 2021, we had um, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and the March for Justice movement kind of coming to such a, a boiling point as some might refer to it as, uh, which is, I think we were so lucky to be um, working with Plan at that time. Like it was just such a sort of trick of fate, I think. Um, and it's been pretty tough to get uh, the recommendations that we put forward actually recognized um, anywhere uh, aside from, we've had quite a bit of media attention around it, but aside from that, like no, no one in parliament has particularly been super keen to bring these on board, uh, except for some of the female politicians who have been quite supportive. Um, but yeah, I think um, we haven't exactly had the easiest time actually getting what we were asking for recognized. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with Margaret. I feel like we had put a lot of effort into wanting to say what we had from like a youth perspective and also what we've noticed within Parliament. And I feel like the fact that it isn't recognised is also a, like a display of the institution that is held in Canberra, like, you know, just ignoring um, youth voice or, you know, female perspective. <clears throat> I think that's just a broader term to say that um, it's not at all a supported um, institution. It's rather um, kind of ignoring their problems and just perpetuating that same type of culture they've got in the Canberra bubble. Yeah, it's easier to be to sweep those problems under the rug, I think, is their perspective. Um, can you go over some of what these recommendations were? Yeah. Um, I think one of our recommendations that I remember was that that we were to have stricter quotas for um, people within marginalised communities. And that wasn't just um, for the purposes of tokenism, but rather actually giving them a voice and amplifying what they have to say. So moving away from that tokenistic aspect and letting people within LGBT communities, um, people of colour and um, other marginalised communities have their say. Um, yeah, another recommendation that we were fighting for was uh, mandatory consent training um, and training around gender equality and issues relating to um, safety in the workplace, uh, because currently it's not mandatory um, and the rules around it are pretty flimsy, even though there has been some level of improvement since Brittany Higgins came forward. Um, it's not enough. It's definitely not enough, but I think we have seen that, correct me if I'm wrong, mandatory consent education, wait, consent in schools has been made mandatory, um, but education? Uh, yeah, in schools, yes. I believe so, yeah, um, but in parliament, uh, we they don't have a system. <laughs> I mean, is, you think they might not need it then, but... <laughs> <laughs> You'd hope so. Yeah, obviously for future generations uh, that that will the schools training will be important. Um, but obviously for the current politicians, um, the members themselves do have a what was it, Harleen? It was like a two hour session um, where they have to attend. But no one who is a staffer is required to attend. And obviously the majority of people who work in Parliament are staffers, not members. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
So, um, so Ashley was supposed to join us today, but sadly she is unwell for those who don't know. <laughs> um, she is the founder of Raise Our Voice Australia, an initiative which works to include young female and non-binary voices in public decision-making. And they've played quite a tangible role in encouraging young people to take up a career in politics. And they've just released a report on the impact of this. And a common problem seems to be that while young people are engaged in politics, they don't know how to get their voices heard. And as like we've seen from you guys, recommendations are put forward and they're not listened to. So um, as young women who aspire to create change through activism and leadership, and you've kind of already touched on one challenge, but what are some of the challenges that you've had to face? I think it's a lot more implicit than it is explicit from my personal experience. I think um, just the way that we talk about politics and we talk about things being like male jobs or masculine jobs, because um, I obviously work as a director, um, which is another example of something where we, I think we refer to it as a, as a masculine trade, um, instead of it being just like a, a job that you can, <laughs> that anyone could do. Um, and I think in terms of the media, um, they do have a role to play in, uh, or at least across our time being involved with plan um, and doing media around this issue and other issues. I think my experience has been that the media does tend to desire to, um, there's sort of this binary that they want to present women as either like distressed and in need of help or um, like empowered and in no need of help. And there's sort of a binary that um, it's funny because when you search my name, you'll find articles that are like one or the other um, when in fact, it doesn't really take into account the fact that women are also whole complex beings and creatures and people who um, have different issues that they need assistance with and don't need assistance with. And, and this difference between empowering women um, and looking at them as some sort of object of saving, um, I think I've found that the media is quite quick to say, uh, jump on headlines if they're around like an emotional response from a woman um and I think that's been something that a lot of female politicians and female public figures have been writing about in books like um media tarts and other um misrepresented that kind of thing um but yeah I mean I think women aren't encouraged to think about the possibility of having a career in politics um and I think when I was growing up there was a lot of discussion about um, how hard it must be and um, the likelihood of things like uh, being taken advantage of, sexual harassment. And obviously this was pre-Me Too because um, I sort of went through high school and then Me Too happened right as I was leaving high school. Um, but I think we used to talk about the likelihood of those sorts of things uh, in a way that I reflect on it now and I'm sort of like, oh, I can't believe that we were just sort of like, yeah, that will probably happen to us. Um, and we sort of just accepted it. Um, as a fact, which I hope it doesn't happen anymore, but maybe Harling can speak to that a bit more clearly. I definitely agree with Margaret. I think the barriers um, when you do speak up about wanting to join within parliament or politics, whatever it may be, as a woman, 
um, you're either seen as the damsel in distress archetype or rather the media has this tokenistic type of, um, it coins you for portraying a certain ideal that is, you know, accepted by the audience and it's digestible to most people and it's like, you know, rephrased to what you actually want to say. And I think in terms of other barriers, it's a lot more different for people of colour, people in other marginalised communities that are facing not just, um, say, for a woman, not just sexism, but also racism and, you know, whatever um, else they may face. So I think those barriers are a lot more systemic and ingrained and they definitely do play a role into people who want to act and um, achieve positions in parliament. Yeah, I think the idea of something being systemic is what I'd like to continue off. You both have kind of childhood anecdotes, so you can see that this has started from obviously a very long time ago. But um, I, 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 when Ashley was going to be with us, I wanted to talk about how um, her um, initiatives is aimed to try to take these challenges away and where we think these challenges stem from. And we've already touched on a bit with um, <clears throat> schools and consent. And it's kind of the first institution that we're introduced to, like the first time that we belong to a group and a, a, a building and a, a business as big as that with rules and hierarchy is school. And so it's natural that um, a lot of the ideas that we get from that will take into the workplace and into stuff like parliament and university. So I was wondering if, you think schools are a really important place to have this cultural shift? Um, I'd like to say that being in school, it is so vital that we have consent training, mandatory consent training. I feel like it just shapes a lot of people um, to head out into the real world. And I feel like without that, I can speak from experience Last year, our school tried to um, incorporate consent training and it was split off into genders. It was boys, the boys listen to their talk, girls listen to their talk. There's no, it's a very binary system. There's no sharing of experiences. Um, but then again, how much it is implemented into the school curriculum also affects how teachers are supposed to respond to that. And I feel like like Margaret was saying, the height of the Brittany Higgins story and stuff like that, um, that was very critical for students to take action on and implement that consent training. But the I feel like the resources to implement it are very limited. And so most schools are struggling on how to actually incorporate into the curriculum or how to do it the right way. And I think that needs to be offered um, by the government on how to, you know, show it the right way which is ironic because the government is struggling themselves, but yeah. 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 Um, no, I completely agree. I think uh, consent training in schools is a really important step towards the future. And yeah, I'm sad to hear, Harleen, that um, you were split by gender because I think there is a crucial lack of empathy when it comes to the way that we approach sex education and consent training um which I think does actually require everybody to just be in the same room and like be like we are teaching people who are about to be young adults or who are young adults about you know very normal things um and very it, it, 
uh, pivotal things to their adult existence. Um, but I also think that there is kind of not enough focus on people who are above school age um, because, and, and I think it's great that we are teaching um, young kids because obviously the change will come with them and their generation um, because there'll be so much more like work and everything than even we are, I imagine. Um, but I think like I was recently uh, staying with a, a family member and, and, you know, despite all of the work that I have done around this issue was literally said straight to my face, there's no barrier to women entering politics. And I was sort of like, cool. Okay. Um, please read some of my articles, but like, I think the problem is that um, because it is so systemic and workplaces sort of have a really very corporate way of going about the way that they educate people on consent and feminism and equality, uh, it sort of does become like this sort of mandatory, boring um, HR experience as opposed to something that actually could help build connections and 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 build their skills because being able to respond and have empathy to a person is a skill. Um, um, and I think that's why, um, you know, I obviously believe that art is so important, but I, yeah, I wish there was a bit more focus on people who are university age and above uh, and their approach to the changes that have happened since Me Too and obviously Brittany Higgins and all that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think um, as soon as you create a culture, people aren't likely to come into that and then not want to do it. But I think the problem is, is that um, people are going into workplaces and the attitude is already that this is a waste of time. Um, so um, coming, going off that um, culture idea, Harleen, in an interview with the SBS, you talk about how colorism and racism d deeply affected your self-esteem while growing up. Can you speak to how important it is to have women of colour in leadership positions and how this builds confidence in young girls? Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like growing up, I barely saw women that looked like me or, you know, even like close to my skin colour or shade. And I think that it's a lot more detrimental for women who are even darker than me. I think I can, I have that sort of like... Um, advantage there but it is very vital that we have women in leadership or women just across media that are representative of the whole of Australia because Australia is obviously very um, multi-ethnic and it's very multicultural etc but um, having people who are solely just you know white and um, not representative of the whole community um, is very it, it really did um, alter my way of viewing the world because it's a very Eurocentric world therefore but I feel like having a lot of people who are representing diverse people within the community is very um, helpful people for younger people growing up because it shows that they're in a position of power um, I can be in a position of power too. Exactly and Margaret, sorry, I've got all my quotes today. Um, in an interview of mine, honey, you say that's all very well to have more women in parliament, but it's about creating an environment where women are actually safe, 
not just satisfying a quota. And we've kind of already touched on this already, but I like the way you frame that because I think it was quite unique where like, I think we get focused on this idea of fulfilling a quota and probably because of tokenism, because it's easy for the government to do it in that way and not actually fix the problem, that the root problem. Um, and this dust has kind of seemingly settled, um, I'd say since the start of 2021 and Brittany Higgins. Do you think that Australia is still concerned about sexual assault and harassment in parliament? No. Um, I think that as with any major movement, it comes to a boiling point. And then unfortunately, the nature of activism is that it does eventually die away. I mean, I think it, there are so many massive changes, but like, obviously we would definitely be able to say that Me Too has died away, Black Lives Matter has died away, um, but the changes that have been left in their wake are very significant. However, I don't feel that the changes left in the wake of March for Justice uh, were that significant, unfortunately, and therefore it sort of feels like we're, we want the movement to keep going and we want people to still care about it because it's not that that much actually changed um and I think yeah in terms of that quote I still 100% agree with it because I think oftentimes when people argue with me about oh well why are you even fighting for this because the Labor Party has a 50% quota that they've filled blah 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 and I think that's valid um in some ways in the sense that of course I appreciate that the Labour Party has done that and you know I hope to see that the other parties um push for more equality in their ranks as well um but yeah as we were just talking about uh, diversity wise a lot of those women are white women or women women of Anglo-Saxon descent um as opposed to from marginalised or migrant communities. Um, and it's not representative of Australia, even though they've technically fulfilled their quota. Um, and I think that um, I hope to see that it's actually about a whole shift in environment and a whole shift in the culture around politics. Um, like I come from quite a political family and my understanding of uh, the environment that politics is, is a very nasty, unkind and um, sort of dog eat dog type profession. And that's why I've never had any particular interest in pursuing it myself is because not that I couldn't handle it or whatever, which some people would probably imply because I'm not interested in it, but because it, it's just not, worth worth it to me mm -hmm. um to to enter into an unsafe environment where you know they treat you like if you can't keep up with the men you know as a woman then you shouldn't be there and even if you can keep up what if you want to have kids or what if you want what if you need extra support because you've got a family at home and you're doing all this stuff and doing the mental load of the home uh domestic side of things as well and I think there's just so many factors that aren't being considered because the people at the top making the decisions about whether we implement any of these changes are all men who have wives who support them 100% or they have nannies taking care of their kids or whatever it is um so I think unfortunately no I don't think Australia is paying that much attention anymore and I wish they were um, which is why I'm so glad to still be doing interviews about it even now. Um, but yeah, hopefully that will change again. 
Hopefully. I feel like there was a bit of a spark with International Women's Day, but yeah, um, I do think it tends to just go off the wayside. So my last question, we've gone quite through this quite quickly. I'm very surprised. Um, so there's a large misconception that young people are not informed enough to be included in politics. What would you both say to those who hold this view? Um, yeah, I'd say that a lot of these people I think that hold that type of view are from a lot of older generations and our generation has grown up in the digital age. Information is a lot more accessible, whether it's right or wrong. Um, and I feel like people have grown to build their own views um, at a very young age. And I think I can, I was talking to my cousin the other day and he's like um, 11 and he was talking about climate change and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And I feel like you can inform yourself very well. And I don't think that age should be a barrier into someone's understanding or it should be not like taken into account of how much they know and how much they can um speak for because I feel like that's really happened to a lot of people like me I'm quite young and in like the political sphere and I'm quite like um not taken serious enough in terms of what I say I'm just said oh I'm just a little girl I don't know what I'm talking about because of my age which is really weird because you know I'm seeing it in real life I've experienced it I think I have enough credential to speak about it so I think it's a really unfair type of judgment yeah, I think I find it ironic because a lot of people who hold that view uh, may have been fighting for uh, the end to the Vietnam War when they were our age um, uh, or slightly older than you, Harleen. But I think um, it it's it's strange because they would have wanted to have been taken seriously when they were our age, but they think that... Um, the world has gotten softer when I take the opposite perspective and say that the world has actually gotten much more complicated with the introduction of technology and the internet, um, which is something that they kind of didn't have to deal with or didn't, you know, didn't even see coming. Um, and I think because we have such access to information, as Harleen said, we are so much more informed. We're also so much more anxious about the world and the state of things. We have so much access to the news, to online forums, to academic articles, to science, to so many different things. We do not live in the dark and we don't get our media from one source that's the same every single day. We have so many different perspectives to navigate and sift through, which we were also talking about a lot last year in terms of misinformation. Um, and the, the role that the internet has to play in terms of making young people feel like maybe it's actually not worth doing anything, um, but it is, just want to say it is. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, that perspective is obviously just completely ridiculous and has no ground to stand on because age is, of course, there is something to be said about the experience that does come along with age. And I would never try and... Uh, say otherwise because I do think that it's important to listen to the to the older generations as well because I hate the intergenerational war that is being created because I think it's so counterproductive um but obviously there is a war on our generation in particular a lot of different generations are quite angry at us because we are so vocal and so angry and we 
demand change we don't just like sort of hope for it we Mm. we we are willing to fight for it and I think that's absolutely something that puts us on the off the the defense of them quite a lot um so yeah but yes I don't I don't agree with that perspective (laughs) yeah yeah um I definitely think with um yeah I think that intergenerational thing is um, very complicated because it's hard to not want to, for either side to not go, well, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, And it's hard for either side to not want to do that. But I think it's also important to recognize that even if people are different ages, that experience to them still matters like in that time, just because they're only 18 doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. So thank you so much for joining me today, guys. As the election approaches, it is more important than ever that we listen to and advocate for the voices of young women, people of color, non-binary voices and other minority groups. And with your activism, um, we can make a real change. So thank you again for joining me today. It has been a pleasure to talk to you both and I've loved having you on our show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you, Harleen, as well. (laughs) Thank you, Margaret. You've been listening to a Sin Media Podcast where young people run the show.